This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Escape Route, and the author is John Parker, and John joins us from Glasgow, Scotland. Hello, John. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? And welcome to Author Talk. Before we get into finding out some of your uh, escapades, if you will, some of these funny stories, and yet there's some serious ones because of all your experiences uh, from a young boy all the way through uh, adulthood where you've traveled a great deal. You say this, if you want a real laugh about real life experiences, then you need to read my book, Escape Route. It's unlike others because it is a story about an ordinary man who has done much more in his life than a rock star. And it is all true. So that's, uh, that's quite a statement. You've done more than a rock star. Yeah, well, I've read rock stars' books, and a lot of them, to me, they don't seem to have done an awful lot in life <laughs> that an ordinary guy can do. What, what I'm really stating there is ordinary guys can be just as interesting as your real-life rock stars and have just as interesting a life well, that's if, a, they, if they know how to do it. Well, that's a good way to put it. Now, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got to travel so much, and uh, then why you wrote the book. Well, I, I used to travel around Scotland because uh, Scotland is the most beautiful country in the world in my opinion but I'm biased of course and then from there on I just started to travel around Europe uh, just on, on my own backpacking uh, all over Europe, France, Spain, Italy, Greece, uh, Germany, you name it, I've been all over Europe and I just started going further. I uh, went to Kenya, I travelled all around Kenya and Africa and that's, that's, that's really something you've got to see. Africa is a beautiful country, and from there, on to the Caribbean, Jamaica, Cuba, uh, ended up in Peru once as well, uh, but yeah, just, just traveling, 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 it's a way to see the world and get to know the world. I began writing a book to send material to a comedian called Frankie Boyle, because I read his book, and he is a funny comedian, Scottish comedian, and I thought his book was, was tripe. So I started writing material, humor material I was going to send to him, and I just kept on writing and writing and writing, and I realized, hey, I can just keep going and write a book of my own. And that's what I did, and that's how the book came to be. Eventually I got, I got a publisher to publish it for me, and it's just gone on from there. But at the end of the day, I'm a first-time author. I'm just an ordinary guy, and uh, it's, this is all a whole new experience for me. Well, your book talks about, as you put it, if you want to stay scot-free, you've got to have an escape route, and so you won't end up in prison or worse. <laughs> so you've yep, been in some yep. you've been in some tight spots. You've been in some tight spots. Yeah, yeah, very tight spots. But I've always managed to have an escape route to to get out of them. And I guess that's why uh, you call yourself. Uh, excuse the pun. You said it scot-free. Scot-free. Yeah, yeah. I'm the. The real-life Wiley E. Coyote, you know? <laughs> well, let's talk, about, let's, let's talk about something serious before we get into some of the more humorous ones. Uh, tell us about your feelings about Cuba, and you've been to Cuba. You've married a Cuban. Yeah, I'm married to Ismenia. Uh, she, she's my wife. She's in Cuba just now, just visiting her mother. Uh, but I've, I've been to Cuba well, more times than I can remember. It's really just Cuba that I go to now because uh, it's... Every day is something different in Cuba. Everybody's smiling. You know, you wake up in the morning in Cuba and you just think, what's going to happen today? You know, it's, there's so many characters there. And it really is going back 50 years where the old boys are traveling about old Havana, the Cadillacs. I mean, it's like they're taking a step back in time. Just a very, very interesting country. And cheap too, you know. So your, your money, your dollar goes a, a bit longer when you're living over there. But you're concerned about what's happening to the the real folks of Cuba, the re, just the regular citizens, the regular person, because of the embargo. Yeah, the embargo is really it's, it's stopping medicines that they need. Uh, 
they are very poor because their, their economy is, is crunched, really. You know, they can only, they can only trade with... You know, they've really been encouraged to trade with Venezuela and some, some African countries. China's getting in there too now. And really, you know, if we lifted that embargo, they would then hopefully trade with, with decenter countries like ourselves, you know, Great Britain and, and America. Although I've got to say Canada, Canada does help Cuba. Canada's a very, a very, very good country as well. They do help Cuba, but I just feel if we lift the embargo, it will encourage them to, to come and trade with us, you know, the decent folks, you know. Well, let's talk about one of these tight spots. Uh, you say the vast majority of your book is true. You love to give your outlook on life, and, and you've got a lot of opinions, like we just you've just shared your opinion about Cuba, but let's talk about maybe one of these uh, escapades where you got in trouble, and but you had an escape route. Yeah, I think one, is, uh, this, this is pretty crude, one of the things I always wanted to do was have sex with a policewoman. And I did that in Cuba with her uniform on and everything like that, but they, they all want pain afterwards, you know, so my, my escape route was she... She could hardly take money off me when she's a she's a cop. So uh, I high-tailed it out, rapid fire like a devil, like the devil with his tail on fire. And uh, unfortunately, she, she let off a couple of shots at me, which ricocheted off the corner of a building. But I managed to scarper out of there, and and I got off with it. Have, have but, you uh, have you been uh, shot at a lot in your life? <laughs> That, that that's the only time. That's the only time that's because uh, I generally stay well away from the police. That is one escape route you need to remember. Don't ever get too close to the police because they're the ones that will put you in prison. But uh, uh, my, I gave in to my temptation and my fantasy just to have sex with a policewoman and then not pay her. <laughs> but she was uh, she was like a prostitute whose check had just bounced and uh, say yeah she. She, she emptied the emptied the chamber of her gun on me, but but missed. Luckily, she missed. Well, you right. You wouldn't have had a chance to write this book if she had been a better <laughs> shot. That's for sure. Now you call yourself you call yourself politically incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, the thing is, if you're going to make jokes, you you you've, you've got to pick fun at somebody, and it's, it's got to be. Incorrect, but if it's not, if you're so politically correct, you'd be boring, you know. You find every every comedian is politically incorrect in some way or other, you know. It's just so long as you don't. Everybody knows it's only it's only for the sake of comedy, and it's not meant to to offend or hurt. And at the end of the day, you know, I sort of poke fun at myself more than anyone else, you know. So. If you can't laugh at yourself, you really can't laugh at all, is my opinion. You say that, I guess, again, in, in, with this, your wry humor, and sometimes you uh, even attack uh, different, even uh, nationalities. You say you berate every nationality on Earth. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's only meant for humor. Uh, I guess what I'm saying there is every nationality has got... Uh, how can we put it, uh, a, a wank in their rank, you know? Mm-hmm. I've always found like, the French to be disastrous when you meet them abroad. Not all of them, but, but some of them. You know, they get, they get abroad, they end up in trouble, end up with no money. You know, I have, but they're nice people. You know, I get on well with the French. I do actually get on well with, with every nationality. See, the Italians, Italian people abroad, are, they are arrogant. You know, they they are they're, they're probably the worst people I meet when I'm abroad. But <laughs> they, they 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 can they can be as they are. You know, I just leave them well alone. I guess what I was saying there is you you've got to have a premeditated plan when you meet people. You'll find Scotsmen. Us Scots, we are always drunk, always drunk, and always use very strong cussing language. But that's. That's that's Scotsman for you. That that's that. that we, I'm sure we'd all agree with you. We're probably are the drunkest people you meet when you go abroad. What would you say, John? Are the dangers you have to look out for while you're traveling? The real danger you got to look out for is to look after your cash, because if you're traveling through a poor country, these people are going to want your cash. 
and you've got to be careful of thieves and such. So I've, I've wrote in there, you know, what, the way I plan my cash, I always have plan A, plan B, plan C. Plan A is always just take cash with you and hide it. Plan B is to have your credit card, you know, and don't lose it. And the other most important plan is never lose your passport. I always, I always hide, hide my things. Don't put them in a safe box because that's exactly where the thief's going to go. And don't run around with one of those bum bags on you because that's what the thief's going to try and steal from you. Mm. It's, it's just you've got because if you're in a foreign country and you've got no money and you're no passport, you really are in trouble. You know that's and it's just going to ruin your, it's going to ruin your travel. You know. So how did you figure out how you can trust a foreigner when you meet them, when you're travels? How do you know you can trust them? For me, I always look at their eyes. If they can't look you straight in the eye, they've got something else in their mind, usually trying to get some money out of you. Uh, I, met, I met a lot of dandy-breathed dudes in my travels, and I always can read someone by just, just, just reading their eyes. Now, you say you have a chapter called uh, Home? Is that what it is? It's your stand-up speech, your comedy stand-up? Yeah, Home. It's, uh, my, my home is, well, Glasgow, but it's right in the west of Scotland, a place called Greenock. And Greenock is a real dirty old town, uh, but with a lot of characters in it as well. And it's just, well, I'm trying to describe life in the west of Scotland. You know, it's where it's it's a, it's a it's a nice place to come and see. It's an old industrial shipyard town. Probably a lot of places like it in America as well. Uh, just places where the industry once was, but has, has left it. And people just just get by with a, in a sense of humour and uh, just helping everyone out. And what about travelling with terrorism in the world? How do you is that on your mind very much when you're travelling? To be honest, I would avoid going to places where there's terrorism, like, you know, this, in the jungles of Colombia, especially where there's war-torn places. I mean, why, why would you want to go to somewhere where there's someone that wants to chop your head off? You know, there's, there's lots of other countries in the world where people just want to welcome you. And uh, I would always, I mean, these Arab states, uh, I've always kept well, well back from them because I just think well if if they want if they want to be terrorists just don't don't visit don't visit their country do you have some feelings for the palestinians i, I do i do because say uh, i know a lot about modern history read watch a lot of documentaries and i do feel that the palestinians have been sort of pushed out their home after the second world war and i think that's where most of the terrorism is coming from because of what ha- what's happened to them, and uh, I'm not political, but I-, I think we should, if we help them, maybe terrorism would settle down a little bit more in the world. But I don't think we will. I think we're just going to let them well, be John- in the in the poor state that they're in just now. And I think terrorism is always going to be here in the world. It's just, I think it's just something we just can't address properly. Well, John, let's uh, let's yes, it is a shame. Let's kind of end on a up note uh, put a smile on our face give us another yeah. story and then we'll find out how to get your book another story was pro- probably getting off with girls I don't do it now because I'm, I'm happily married thankfully but in, in my young days was getting off with girls I always used to like to try and get a twosome and I've had a few twosomes in my life and basically to get off with a girl when you're abroad just lie all you want lie all you want <laughs> girls love being lied to I don't know why but they just love being lied to and at the end of the day you're the foreign man in their eyes and just tell them whatever you want to tell them about yourself <clears throat> just just be confident and fuck yourself up well everyone you've been listening to John Parker he's world traveler escape artist <laughs> uh, his title of his book Escape Root John tell us how to get your book it's, it's on the internet and uh, com. It's also on Amazon and and other websites, Shelfari, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, m- most mostly just on the internet. Be good to download it and have a laugh. 
an e-book form, you know, it costs a few bucks anyway. And at the end of the day, you can read it again and again and again, and you'll still find something funny in there. Well, John, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. No bother, Steve. Thanks. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Saving Lee, Finding Grace, A Mother's Journey. And the author is Anne Marie Hamming, and Anne joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Anne. Hello. Great to have you with us. Let me read what you've written about your story, about your book, Saving Lee. Finding Grace. You say this. This is the story of the way a sick child changes everything about a family. And in the end, you come out stronger because you know your priorities more deeply. You know what doesn't matter to you and what does matter. And you choose to be happy and grateful for all that you have. Well, that is really down to the bottom line, isn't it? Family. It doesn't get much more basic than that when we're talking about happiness. That's correct. That's correct. And my son showed me a lot about, um, you know, what it took to be happy. Um, I, I entered motherhood with a vastly different uh, view of happiness than, than what I have now. Um, I was uh, definitely more the... Uh, the, um, the professional um, uh, working mother, and that was certainly how I planned on doing it. I, I was um, very focused on my career and affluence, accomplishment, um, and and um, and yeah, I'll admit to a shallow level, the appearance of of having it all. And um, my sick child really pushed me to to call all of that into question and he he pushed me to the point uh of where I had to walk away from my career and really uh reassess what I was doing with my life because I I no longer had a job to go back to and all I had was really my two children and and one of those children Lee just kept getting sicker and sicker and it seemed like no matter what we did he didn't get better, and no matter what doctor we turned to, for quite some time, um, the doctor didn't have answers, and uh, we plotted along. Um, and he was fairly miserable for, for quite some time. Now, during that time, uh, what about your daughter, Katie? 
Oh, my daughter Katie. Um, well, um, after my son was diagnosed with uh, an extremely rare autoimmune condition, um, uh, which we call IPEX for short, um, I had to uh, send my daughter to, to live with my parents for, um, it ended up being a little over a year, uh, because, uh, once we found out what my son had, uh, we learned that there was something we could do about it, but it was pretty drastic. Uh, we had to move, uh, from our home near Grand Rapids, Michigan to Cincinnati for him to undergo a full bone marrow transplant. Uh, we were quite fortunate that Cincinnati um, is one of the top hospitals in the country uh, in handling this rare illness, and there are only really a handful of hospitals in the country with experience uh, uh, handling transplants for IPEX. So, yes, my daughter had to go and live with my parents and um, uh, experience kind of being an only child and being away from mom and away from her little brother for several months. We did get to see her for visits in there in that time. Um, but, you know, we've had very separate lives um, while, while my son was ill. And it, it really did take all of my energy and all of my focus um, just to be with him through the transplant and the very lengthy recovery that followed. We're talking about weeks in the hospital. We're talking about months of isolation with your son. How did you get through all that? <laughs> well, I, I dialed my life back to some very, very basic things. Um, I, I created rituals out of very basic things that helped me kind of stay grounded and hopeful every day. Um, you know, I, I, I meditated. I prayed. I... Um, took very, very good care of myself. The, the very basic things are, are so essential in a process like that. So I made sure I got adequate rest. I made sure I tried to get outside to exercise and ate nutritiously. Um, on a, a deeper level, you know, in the very frustrating moments, um, I would, I challenged myself to really, I, I call it hold a vision of the future. And, um, so while I was handling the tough moments, I really tried to visualize us uh, 10 to 20 years in the future, you know, reminiscing about that time. And I tried to visualize him as a young man, uh, a beautiful young man who would, was taller than me, who would say, yeah, mom, do you remember uh, when I had my transplant? And can, can you believe all that we, we had to do for that? Um, another thing that I did to help myself was I, I fully accepted the experience and I embraced it um, because I found that when I fell into thinking, oh, why is this happening to me or this shouldn't be happening to me and my son, I just really got stuck in a rut and um, I found the most helpful thing was to accept that, hey, sickness is a part of living too. This is all part of the human experience. And when I just wrapped my arms around all of it and just said, hey, uh, you know, my heart can be stretched from, you know, exhaustion to an, an intense despair and fear all the way to intense joy. And when I did that, um, I, I found that that I was just able to just really be with the experience and take it day by day hour by hour, and know that I was going to really, in the long run, cherish, you know, every part of the experience. So that, that helped me, helped me greatly. Help us understand the meaning of this statement. Uh, you say, mm -hmm. I speak candidly, of course, in your book, about the failings mm -hmm. of several traditional religious teachings of my youth and early adulthood. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I, my mind was searching for um, some broader definitions. I certainly was not walking away from my faith. In fact, my faith deepened. But the language I use uh, for um, explaining uh, to me the, the divine and, and this kind of marvelous experience of life has, has gotten much broader and so, um, you know, I, I began to look at miracles much differently. So many people would say, Lee is a miracle, isn't he? And I couldn't dispute that. 
But I had to look at the flip side, like, wow, what if things had gone terribly wrong with his transplant and we had lost him? And I'm like, would people be calling that the miracle then? And and I came to conclude that, you know, the boys who came before my son, who did die when there was much less known about his illness, they were no less a miracle than my son because life is a miracle. And the miracle of these kids is that it is the will to live. I, I mean, when I looked in my son's eyes, his will to live was miraculous. And it was shown that I saw that sparkle in child after child after child who I've encountered um, through his, his medical treatment that they their their fascination with life, their desire to learn and to to love and to be engaged with everyone around them is is truly the miracle that that no misery and no suffering you know can put out those fires. And another um, way in which I broadened my religious teaching or my religious um, out uh, language, I guess is the word I'm looking for, was. Um, I, I I no longer looked at our suffering as um, you know is is God punishing me for something or, or or is this somehow my fault? I had to walk away from that because it just wasn't helping me. And instead, I felt the presence of God in the way people would help me and in the way I could reach out and help my son. And, and I, I, I broadened it to look at suffering as, yes, it is a part of the human condition and it is a part of the human experience. But for me, God was in the helping hand and the, the person who sent the card to say, hang in there and hey, here's $20, <laughs> you know, to help you out. And so it was, it ended up being a, a broadening of, of the terminology, um, in a way that helped me be very, very accepting, uh, of the experience and convey what all religious language really does get to is just trying to express, um, you know, this experience of life and, and why we're here. And we're here to marvel at it and to help one another through it. So. Well, we can all tell uh, how this experience has helped you uh, change your values, changed your priorities. Uh, we can hear a lot of wisdom in what you're explaining to us. But there were tough moments. Uh, there were times oh. that you admit where you thought you might not hold up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When my son and I were <laughs> holed up in a little, uh, in a two bedroom condominium in the uh, months immediately after his transplant. And it was just him and me in Cincinnati. And I had a family to come and break things up every 10 to 14 days. And then I had a couple of retired neighbors who could come and be with Lee for just little spurts so I could get out. And yes, there, there absolutely were times <laughs> where I thought, oh my, how am I going to handle this? Because my son... Um, immediately after transplant started feeling um, quite good and he had more energy than he had ever known in his life and he had more energy than he knew what to do with or knew how to control and I describe it as um, the terrible twos and threes and fours all rushing out at once in the body of a very articulate five-year-old and there were many times I had to take many deep breaths <laughs> and hmm. um, um, and just say often I said this too shall pass and as in you know this is temporary this isn't going to last and two the other thing that, that really helped me through it and view it with good humor was a, a deep gratitude for the fact that he was getting a chance to have energy um, like he had never known before. And granted, some of it was artificial. He was on a steroid that gave him just energy, just boundless energy. And the the steroid, unfortunately, elevated his, his blood glucose. He has type 1 diabetes. And so you put those two factors I, I, together. You know, I did have a little wild man 
but I was absolutely grateful and kind of um, just marveled at, <laughs> at this creature who had just almost come out of nowhere. And, and because before he had been so terribly passive and, and um, didn't have energy and didn't even complain if other kids, you know, took toys away from him, he would, he would just give up and, and flop down, um, you know, flop down and play quietly. So I, I did, I, I took, I, I felt deep gratitude and I tried to take the long view that, whew, you know, <laughs> this is, this too shall pass and, and, and we'll get there. It's just another step in the journey. We have a little bit of time left for our discussion. Help us understand your advice to someone who's struggling with change right now, something really big that they have never faced before in their lives. Ah, I, well, um, I would emphasize what I've said about, you know, hold the vision, that, that look at it. Look at it from, from 20 years from now or 30 years from now and make some decisions about um, what things will fill you with pride and, and satisfaction with how you handle the situation right now um, and use some of those decisions to, to guide you. Um, the other thing is, is so important is self-care. When you're facing change and having difficult decisions that you absolutely must get adequate rest, adequate exercise, adequate connections with the people who love you and adequate support um, so that you can have some clarity and, and have some stamina um, to, to make really good decisions. And, and, and last, I would say remember to look at your life and who you might be if you were losing the most important one or two or three things in your life. You know, I lost a marriage. I lost a career that was a huge part of my identity. And my hold on the third part of having two healthy children, you know, was pretty shaky for a while. And looking at my life without those things, I realized, wow, I'm still standing. I'm still here. And even though my life is greatly altered, it opened my mind to some, the, the, the fact that there was still a lot of richness in my life. It just wasn't coming in the things I thought it would. So always keep your eyes open to what's, what's on the other side. You know, a door closes in your life, but that means you just have to turn around and look, and there might be some other doors opening. So, so be aware and, and be in tune with those things because your life doesn't end um, with unanticipated changes, even though it, it yeah, honestly feels like it at moments. Um, but again, this too shall pass. And, and always yeah, take the long view. Be grateful for the things you do still have and realize that, that, that you will make it through. Great advice, Anne. Anne-Marie Hamming, she's the author of her book, Saving Lee, Finding Grace, A Mother's Journey. Anne, tell us how to get your book. Oh, you can get my book through authorhouse.com, through Amazon, and barnesandnoble.com as well, uh, in paperback and Kindle, or through my website, which is annhamming.com, A-N-N-E-H-A-M-M-I-N-G. Thank you so much, Ann, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you. It's been absolutely delightful. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search. Physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. 
For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, American Resolve and the Art of War, a study and application of military tactics. And the author is Lieutenant Colonel John Proctor, U.S. Air Force, retired. John, welcome to Author Talk. Yeah, thank you. Great to have you with us. Uh, First of all, let me read just a couple things you've written about your book for everyone's understanding of, of what we're going to talk about. You say, my book is about war and America's role in world affairs. Special emphasis is placed on tactics that, if properly learned, can win battles and minimize casualties. Ultimately, my book describes a need for a special reserve force to maintain world peace at a nominal cost. I also like this quote that you uh, shared, uh, if you wish for peace, understand war. That kind of says it all. Well, John, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your military background and why you wrote your book. Oh, <clears throat> well, my, I'm not a real, uh, I'm just like to say I'm just in the reserves most of the time, but I was in the Korean War, and I did serve uh, about the, uh, Ten months in Germany, Germany, Army of Occupation. I didn't put that as part of my resume, but I, that's part of my background. And uh, most of the time, I went through the ROTC program at the University of Texas. Then got a uh, uh, commission as a second lieutenant, and then you know I stayed in the reserves after served in the Korean War, and then stayed in the reserves thereafter. And uh, that reserve duty had, uh, prompted me to write the book because uh, I realized that uh, the cost of military operations and qu- equipment has <clears throat> really increased. So one way to minimize the cost and yet have a, a big army is to use the reserve forces. And they have to be skillfully trained, not just I know most of the reserve duty they just go to uh, some air base or some military thing and they just watch movies and things like that. But they do. Some of them are really active. I know uh, I came across a National Guard outfit in uh, New Mexico and they were, you know, artillery. Well, anyway, they compared their artillery uh, proficiency against the regular military and they were equal to the regular military so they they did a, I might say a good well trained national guard troops which which you think well they couldn't do it because not as good as the regulars because they do it all day every day but anyway <clears throat> anyway the reserve can do a good job and uh, actually uh, three other countries of course smaller countries the United States has a large reserve force like Israelis, you know, they're well known for their, they can mobilize within uh, 24 hours or maybe 48 hours and have a big army. I mean, they're they're a standing army that the Israelis need 
to, you know, because they're outnumbered on all fronts. And then uh, Switzerland also has a big reserve force. So they, when they mobilize, they can be about three times their active army. And Finland is another one that has a big reserve force. And Finland, you know, they were part of Russia, and then they broke away and they became part of Sweden. But anyway, they're an independent country now, and they rely on their reserve forces. They had a treaty with Russia after World War II. Finland fought against Russia. They were in a, uh, not in good stead with the Russians. But anyway, the Russians permitted them to have an army, a small army, about 40,000 men. But if they need to, they can mobilize their reserve force, and they'll have, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but it'll be close to 100,000 men. And and these are countries that are much smaller than the United States, and I realize you can't compare a small country with a big country like the United States, but it's the same idea, same principle works. And two, the cost of reserve forces is uh, just a, small amount in compared to a, a regular army on uh, active duty. And so that's, you know, right now, the United States is trying to cut back on its, on everything, including the military. I think they're really, the, if that uh, falling off the cliff if financially it goes into effect with the military, we hit the hardest. But anyway, uh, so I think we're all Concerned about the money being spent, and uh, by uh, using reserve forces, you'll have a big force and yet uh, minimal cost. And the main reason I wanted to have a big reserve force, well, I guess there's several reasons. Well, one of the reasons is because of minimized casualties. But see, when the United States goes into war or has been in the past. They call up civilians and and they run them through a, a little factory, you might say, and they're, okay, now you're a soldier. Well, they really aren't. They're just they they just go into a meat grinder almost. And uh, well, for example, uh, the United States entered World War II, and the first battle, one of the first battles they fought in Europe was the Battle of Kasserine Pass. Of course, that was in North Africa, but, I mean, it was a European uh, theater. They were fighting against Germany at the time. Well, <clears throat> some of the men who fought at the Battle of... Some of the American men fought in the Battle of Kasserine Pass never fired their weapons before going into action. So they were so poorly trained that they... They were just there to wear a uniform, I guess, to show, show force. So I don't know exactly what they had in mind. But, but that, and that's a, well, it goes back to Abraham Lincoln. Everybody thinks he's a great leader, and he was, but he wasn't much of a military man when the Civil War first broke out. He, Abraham Lincoln, well, okay, we'll call up 75,000 volunteers to serve three months. And he, I guess he thought all you do is give a man a uniform and a gun, and that, he, that he's now a soldier. And I think a lot of people, still think that way, that that's all soldiering is. And, uh, you know, General Pershing, a World War One American general, said uh, all a soldier has to do is uh, shoot and salute. That seems simple enough, and that makes you a soldier. Of course, that goes in much deeper detail than, you know, when, you, when Pershing said that, he didn't, he included all the details that you don't hear from just that simple phrase but um, but the saluting part that's the, the big part that it's hard to the Americans by, by must be by heritage don't care for military operations and uh, well it was just part of their makeup anyway so uh, uh, the saluting is really defines what a soldier is I mean, if he knows how to salute, that's okay. But I mean, it is more it goes in more deeper detail. I mean, when you salute, you are part of an organization that makes you uh, uh, different from a civilian. Now you you're talk. Part of, of an, 
Yeah. You talk You're about part of an the, elite group. Yeah, let's go right. ahead. You talk about the battles fought in the 19th and 20th centuries. You're focused, obviously, not so much on history, but on these military tactics. Yes, right. And, and you have a formula. Uh, you call it innovation plus weapons equals tactics. Why does that formula, why is that so important? Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> the innovation part, that's the most important. Well, if you go into battle and uh, say you had 10 men with you and they all had a rifle, okay, that was, the weapons are rifles and the innovation is how are you going to di- display this or how are you going to put this in action? And if you, you know, say one man has a machine gun, well, that's even, that changes the weaponry. So your innovation has changes a little bit for that. But uh, I, I read a story about one time about the German army in Russia in World War II. The Russians had, uh, and were defending a road position, and they dug in their tanks. I mean, they dug them in, and all that was above ground was the turrets, you know, where the guns are. Well, you know, the, the, when the turrets, they were almost impenetrable you can't so the germans couldn't realize they couldn't shoot their way through that unless they had some really heavy artillery but anyway so what they did using innovation they uh got pretty close to the russian position and then gave the appearance that they were retreating what they did took trees and other brush and tied it to the back of a truck and drove down the road in the opposite direction from the Russians and, you know, create a lot of dust and looked like the Germans were retreating. So they brought their tanks out of this dug-in position and started chasing the so-called Germans, but the Germans were waiting for them on, on the flanks, and therefore they shot up the Russian tanks. That, that was a, uh, uh, that, what I'll say, innovation at its best because in other words, you, they, they destroyed their Russian position, yet they came out without with a minimum number of casualties in the process and just didn't, didn't try to use brute force trying to get through their use innovative tactics. Uh, that, that is, uh, that's what I mean by innovation. It's uh, the big part of uh, tactics is innovation. And uh, uh, if you took a reserve unit and just... Well, just train a little bit on the weekend and stuff like that. You don't really get much uh, knowledge about innovation. So you have to do it and do it uh, several years over and over. In other words, man, I suggested three weeks a year training. And then uh, that's, after a while, it kind of gets in part of you. The training becomes part of you. And it, uh, it actually, I guess, when you go rack your, your civilian job, you can still think about what what I did on the military end of the reserve. So it's, uh, uh, well, I think if it, t- it makes you think, well, that's a good process right. as a civilian. Right. You need thinking people. Yes, right. Go ahead. Do you think there will be another big war? Well, if we prepared... We won't have one, but if we unprepared, we will. I mean, it's it's kind of a uh, well. Uh, if I can just use the example, uh, Japan during World War II attacked the United States because they we appeared weak. We had a big navy, but no army, and so they and their Japanese army fought in China for for an old decade. So they were well trained, ready to go, and so they thought well. We eliminate the American Navy, and we could just drive all the way to Australia. And the Americans will have to just concede because they can't possibly overcome all all these defeats. And so I think they had in mind not to, to conquer the United States, but just to make them concede and and just concede that the Japan owned that part of the Pacific Ocean. But uh, as far as the uh, you know, if we're well prepared, have a well well trained reserve force, 
I don't think an enemy will attack. But if they see weakness, they will attack. I mean, that's just part of uh, uh, life in the, on the world. <laughs> it's it, that's just uh, right. Well, it's it's done. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say if we're going to have another war or not. But I know before World War One broke out, they thought war, uh, war is impossible. We're too economically tied together that we can't possibly fight. But anyway, a big war broke out anyway. So, uh, yeah, no, no one knows for sure, but by being prepared, though, you won't have one because they'll, they'll know uh, the enemy will see, well, we have to overcome too much to to defeat and the and uh, I think uh, in the case of Japan, Japan didn't think we would uh, would fight. You know, they're, well, they're just lazy bunch of bones there. But uh, but I don't know who who could. Well, we we do have uh, enemies, but not necessarily going to war with them. You know, that's China and Russia are both able countries and. It's just uh, there. If our interests conflict with their interests, well, then it's possible. But in my idea, just be prepared, and you won't have a war. But if you aren't prepared, you're letting yourself wide open to have one. And being unprepared really has you automatically get a lot of casualties because right. men don't aren't aware of uh, of the tactics. And they, well, I don't know. They just it's just a just a bad situation when, when men are untrained going in the battle. My idea is to get them everybody well trained, and so if they do go in the battle, they won't be the, the casualties be a minimum. And two, the another positive side of it, you you probably won't have to go to war because uh, the enemy will know you're just too strong. Right. That's a uh, always seems to prevent war strength. Well, we've been listening to John Proctor, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, I guess you can get it from Author House uh, using their, uh, 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 what do they call it, their website. Right. Authorhouse.com. Yeah, Authorhouse.com. And, and of course, there's Barnes & Noble and... uh, What's that other one? Amazon.com. Amazon, yeah, that's it. Yeah, The big retailers, book retailers. Well, thank you, John, so much for being with us on Author Talk. 